Yeah, I've heard people use that for their own calling. How do you know what God's called you to do? Well, I'll know because it'll be the easy thing to do. I'll get so much great result. I won't have to do anything hard. It won't, and it'll serve me. It'll, it'll, high paycheck, high profitability. Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you will find and apply God's wisdom to your work. I'm Dr. Chip Roper, and I'm joined by Ken Kennard and Sarah Evers. We aim to inspire, challenge, and equip you to follow Jesus in the vocational dimension of your life. As we begin this episode, I want to thank our generous donors who make this podcast possible. We are grateful for your support. VOCA funders sign up to change lives by changing work. And if you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, invest in VOCA. Just go to vocacenter.org give and join us today. Chip, I read your article on the VOCA blog about how being an underdog is underrated. I think you've got some interesting ideas in there. That might make a really great discussion. I've also got a couple thoughts. I think some of them made you uncomfortable. (laughs) There were some things in there that made me a little bit uncomfortable. So it's going to be an excellent, (laughs) it's going to be an excellent conversation for us to have together. It might be, I might have a question or a pushback too. I think there's a number of things that are overrated. They just get played over and over and over again. And, and they often include a little bit of truth, but when you really poke into them, um, they're not that helpful. And being an underdog is something for some reason we seem to idolize, at least in American culture. And sometimes I think we even spiritualize it. Hmm. And at the end of the day, I think there's a number of folks out there who are actually disillusioned because they think they're going to have some underdog journey and maybe things don't work that way. And and what I've heard in, in the Christian circles is that if 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 God's blessing this, then it'll be easy. It'll be magical. I don't have to put the work in. That's how he's going to bless me. That's how I know I'm being blessed because I'm going to have these magical results with very little effort put in without doing the work. When I was a pastor, somebody tried out for our worship ministry and God told them that they were going to be on the worship team. They couldn't sing. Like their pitch was really poor and their tonal quality was not great either. It felt terrible to have to tell this person this. Like this isn't going to work. So that's a that's a quick example uh, of some of this stuff. I even wonder sometimes, I don't know if you guys have had this in your practices as much, but I'll sometimes have a really high-powered, fast-thinking driver business person who thinks that they're going to go work at a church or a sleepy Christian nonprofit. And a lot of times they end up, they do it because they can, they have the means, but they end up disappointed because it's the things that made them really good in a fast driving business environment where you got to make quick decisions, where you quantify everything, where everything's really fast and results oriented. And frankly, bottom line, you know, results meaning money. That's how it's ultimately measured. Yeah, like then they get into this other parallel universe where it's much more about as long as all the relationships are good, everybody feels good about what's going on and it's slow and and they kind of go crazy. So they don't realize that underneath the surface there's their wiring and it's and it's real and it's not quite the same case, but it's it's still to me similar in a sense. Is that underdog? That's probably not underdog. That's just mismatch. 
No, right. So what I, what I'm hearing is skill plus competency. Maybe that's parenthetical note of practice, preparation, and your skill and your competency, plus the power of the Holy Spirit or the tongues of fire that come down upon you, release us into service for God. But a lot of people think, I just need the passion and the Holy Spirit, and they don't acknowledge the practice, the rehearsal, the way... Um, well, I don't think they acknowledge that you're, you get a package, right, of talent. And you got to do something with it. Turn a, turn right. a, a profit. But you can't do everything with it. You may not even be able to do what you think you want to do at a, at a certain stage in your life mm. um, because you actually don't have the talent to do what you want to do. And I think we're missing something there. So the cultural version of this is just, it's all these, you know, there's all these movies, all these stories about people who are basically wandering and they're lost in some way and then they don't follow a traditional path. And suddenly, you know, there's a bolt of inspiration and they become amazing. They're brilliant. And they're underdogs, right? They're they're underdogs. And sometimes they work really hard and they train really hard like a karate kid. But sometimes they really don't. Like it's just, you know, Kung Fu Panda. That's my favorite. So he, he's like, his training's a joke. It's just, and then when he actually wins his, these fights, it's that's a joke too. Like it's all by accident kind of thing. And I think there's a sort of magical thinking sometimes people have about their career. If they just find the right, if they just point in the right direction, it's just going to all fall into place without effort. It doesn't matter what kind of core talents they really have, and it's going to happen super fast and super easy. And then they end up being disappointed or disillusioned or worse. So the David story in the piece is kind of the anti-underdog. Is that what you're trying to show? Well, I think that David, we use the David and Goliath story as the supreme example of the under, underdog path. And, but it's wrong. It's not a, he wasn't, he's, but it's misapplied because he actually wasn't an underdog. Right. He was, he was an underdog only in perception. Right. Which is the opposite of your story about the worship team. Right. The perception was, I can do this. And the reality was, I can't. Yep. And here the perception is no one believes David's going to do anything great. And the reality is he was actually training for this a long time and was better prepared partially because of him being not perceived as a threat. he that, that was actually an advantage, at least for the first strike. Exactly. Which is all it took. Right. David was highly competent. Yes. He, he was a skilled killer. He just wasn't a skilled killer in the conventional... Warrior. You know, warrior. Soldier. Giants of the... Giant, giant in the army kind of version of it and mm -hmm. so he was he was um it was about perception it wasn't about mm -hmm. reality so that's it's interesting ken because the way you said that i'm i'm envisioning a two by two yeah you know, there's you could be perceived as mm -hmm. you could perceive something as, as strong and it could be weak you could perceive somebody as weak and they could be strong or it could be accurate you know like you could see them as weak and they are weak or you could see them as strong and they are strong so the business translation of this is what we call a disruptor. Disruption theory is what David's doing. He is coming in with something so pathetically um, unimpressive that the incumbent, 
doesn't perceive it as a threat. And in fact, laughs at it because how could it possibly mm. work? And the disruptor uh, sneaks in and with cheaper materials, fewer resources, less, less uh, perceived experience, right? Comes in and actually takes over, un un unearths the, the competitor. And that's the disruption theory. Right. And if you want to be a disruptor, you get your confidence. I mean, you get some of your confidence because we want to, it's still, there's still a spiritual dimension to this, but you get some of your confidence comes from the fact that you really do have a track record, which indicates that you can do this. So remember the David and Goliath story, right? The giant comes out, Goliath, he threatens everybody. Nobody wants to stand up to him. So all the, all the traditional soldiers are shaking in their sandals. I don't think they had boots. Um, but David's like, I'm gonna go, I'll go against this guy. And so he makes his pitch to the king, and he doesn't say, he does say God's going to give me victory. So there's the faith side. But the reason why is he says because, you know, when I was a shepherd, a bear attacked the sheep, and I killed the bear. And when I was, another time, a lion attacked the sheep, and I killed the lion. So it's like, I'm, I'm used to taking on bloodthirsty creatures who want me to be gone and taking them out. Like, I'm good at that. And he also was good with a sling. I don't, we don't know how he took out the lion and the bear, he doesn't say. But the sling was a deadly weapon. It was a deadly weapon. This is not a, a kid's toy. And so he's basically, he's ba his case to be allowed to do this is based on his track record of effectiveness. Mm. It's not... It's not back to what I think Sarah said earlier. It's not hope. It's not like I hope as a what we typically think of as a wish. Wishing. Yeah. Wishing. It's not I just got inspired. Um, you know. You know, the reason I'm signing up to sing is because everybody tells me I have the voice of an angel. And I I think I should sing. Um and I and so I think there's see what I mean? Like it's it's but that's not the way we sort of we spin that story. We even we use the metaphor today. Oh, it's the David and Goliath situation, which we usually mean like we don't really. We just mean that somebody's totally in a disadvantage, and it's a miracle that they actually actually come out ahead, and it's a complete surprise. Which you know, and again, we're talking about what's the reality, what's the perception, and the perception was it was a complete surprise. The reality was. Um, Goliath was was really up against a lethal adversary. Well, and David David had a very particular set of skills that he had acquired over a career as a shepherd to take Liam Neeson's line from Taken out of context. Well, What's I guess the question... Oh, do you want to say more about Liam Neeson? I do. I want to know what his line was. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom... I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. That's the quote. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's good. Okay, so if, if David had all these skills, and if he acquired them over this long period of time, how is it that even the Israelites did not see David as a skilled warrior? What do you think? What's the answer to your own question? See, that's what we do as coaches. We just turn it right back on you. 
Well, there's some possibilities. One is that they really didn't know David, that he was out there in a the field developing these skills in isolation. And he had proven it to himself and the bear, but he had never proven it to his brothers or the, the king. Right. I think another thing is he was he was the youngest of all his brothers. So he was the he was the baby of the family. And sometimes that's a hard um, a hard perception to break out of when somebody has you categorized already. So he's, you might say, underrated, right? He's, mm-hmm. he, they don't see him for the potential he really has. They don't see him for who he is. They probably see him for who they knew him to be years ago. Mm-hmm. And then he got typecast or stuck in a family role. But But doesn't he even say... I killed the bear, I killed the lion. Like, apparently that goes nowhere. I, I never see anywhere in the story where someone says, hey, you know what? That's a pretty impressive resume. Or, um, or one of his brothers says, well, you know, David killed a lion and a bear, so maybe we should get him out here. Yeah. Like, no one brings him in because of his skill. And even when he exposes his abilities, or at least claims to have them, it doesn't seem to carry any weight. There's like, oh yeah, that's fine for you, little boy. But we around here, we fight with shields and swords. Yeah, so he was changing the paradigm of how they fight. Yeah, it was just like you said, Ken. I think it's it's a disruption thing, and and it's so the big idea to me about him is he was an underdog in perception only. He wasn't really an underdog in skill or ability. And in this case, since it was a battle, he wasn't an underdog in lethality. He he really was a dangerous actor. And but but he was grossly underestimated. Mm. Underrated and underestimated. Yeah. The underdog. Right. Based on our research, the top challenge people are facing at work this year is burnout. And it doesn't just affect your performance at work. Ignoring the warning signs can lead to more serious health issues, decreased performance, and overall decline in your quality of life. At VOCA Center, we understand how burnout can mess with you and take you to a really dark place. That's why we created the Burnout Recovery Program. The Burnout Recovery Program is a coaching program that helps assess if you're burned out and helps uncover the underlying causes. Once we understand what's going on, we work together to get your fire back and prevent burnout from returning. We just started the program this year and already clients are getting good results. So reignite your fire and embark on a journey to lasting well-being with our burnout recovery program. To find out more and to get started, visit vocacenter.org slash burnout recovery. That's vocacenter.org slash burnout recovery. If you're overwhelmed or you've already gotten burned out, you don't have to stay there. There's hope for you. Reach out to our coaching team. We're here to help. Vocacenter.org slash burnout recovery. So I actually think about this with some of our work because I think that we're good at what we do. Our clients tell us we're good at what we do. And yet we don't necessarily have as much of a track record as we like to be able to prove to other potential clients that we can really take care of their people develop, you know, their leadership development needs, that kind of thing. And so I think about it, I think it's, I think, but we've all done it. You know, we've all taught and trained adult leaders and, um, it's, it's just the perception because some of that was faith-based or it was in other settings or we don't have certain necessarily degrees or something that, 
we might not be able to do it. Like I, I remember when I was a pastor, we did a leadership development training in our church, and I developed it with one of our team members. And some of the corporate people who came to that, they were volunteer leaders in our church. They said that was the, some of the best leadership. That's like the best leadership stuff I've ever been to. So it, it's not like. We don't have, you know, Ken, you're a college professor, and Sarah, you've taught leaders all over the world. It's not like we don't have the ability to do that. It's not like, no, we've killed lions and we've killed bears. It's just that sometimes there's a perception that um, there might be the perception that we wouldn't be able to do that or do that well or do that in that kind of context. And I, so, so what part of what we're saying, so I, that to me, this is a little bit of a personal topic. It's not like we're saying, you know, we're going to pray about it and then just go suddenly be able to develop leaders. Now, that's not true. It's actually, we've been doing this for a long time, which is also, by the way, in God's providential plan. Like, he gets credit for that. I'm not taking away from that, the, the history part. Um, but when you flip it around, which is sometimes, I think, what we see with others sometimes, and I guess we could do it too if we're not careful. We can all overreach and succumb to this pride and delusional thinking. It's like, it's the opposite. I perceive I have the ability, but I actually don't have the, the track record uh, of, of parallel things and achievements. And then we get off, and, and, and I think we, we can, it can lead us into a place where we become spiritually discouraged, and, um, and, and it just it doesn't go well. I mean, it's, it's hard when you don't, people don't see your capacity. It's real capacity. You don't see it. That's, that's its own journey. Um, but what I see culturally in and outside to church is there's much more of a, we're enamored with the underdog story. Mm. And um, I, I think it just sets us up for disappointment. Why are we so enamored with the underdog story? Why is that so appealing? I think it goes along with the narrative we have about the rugged individualist right? It's one person against everybody else, and I'm going to be the winner. Um, and I was even just, I had that image of, um, I think it's that, that superhero story, Shazam, about the little boy who suddenly becomes a superhero, but he has no experience being a man who suddenly has superhero powers. Shazam! Um, but we love that idea that I can be great without putting the work in that I can do something fantastic without having to have the practice, the research, the study, the repetition to really build those skills and experiences and expertise. And that's good. But I agree. That's another example of it. And that's a great one. And I think, Ken, you said why. I think we need to talk about that. Why is it so appealing? Is it just because it's fast and easy? Like we're all microwave. We just want the microwave version of life. We don't want the the slow cooker. We do want the benefits without putting in the effort, I think. We all, we all want to skip over the discipline, the learning, the hard work, if we can do it. That seems expeditious, f more fun. Get to the good stuff. Get to the winning. Don't talk about practice. Talk about winning the game. Um, so that's sort of, part, I think, maybe part of human nature. Um, we are rugged individualists in this culture. And so we think of this as an individualistic kind of enterprise, right? We talk about it in those terms. It's an individual hero. Um, and even if we're the one, even if we're the hero, it's us as an individual, not as a group. Um, so those appeal to us. I, I don't know. I was listening, I was running this morning and a Miley Cyrus song came in my playlist. And it was basically, she said, I don't belong to you. I don't belong to anybody. I belong to me. 
So there's this idea that nobody really gets to tell us anything except it's all up to us to figure out on our own. So that's that, that's like extreme individualism. So that could be part of it. Um, Andy Crouch in one of his recent books talked about how we've become addicted to experiences that give us a sense of power without any real responsibility or cost. And so we have all these amazing things at our fingertips that don't really cost us anything. That's, that could be part of it too. Like, you know, we just press, we just push buttons and amazing things happen for us that stimulate us and entertain us and soothe us. And so that could be part of it too. Like it's that we really have gotten used to quick fixes for a lot of things. So we sort of think everything should be that way. I mean, we've talked about this a long time ago, but it's one of the myths of calling that you're calling. There's a myth that your calling should be easy. If it's my calling, Mm -hmm. it'll be easy. And, you know, it's like if it's, if a relationship's meant to be, it'll be easy. You shouldn't have to work at it. If a career's meant to be, it should be easy. So again, I don't know totally where that came from. I think it's, could be, that could be, some of that could be generational. Um, yeah, if God has blessed it, it should go smoothly. You know, oh, we the, say that. We he makes the road that. rise up to meet me, right? He makes the rough places smooth ahead of me. I think that's taken out of context. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard people use that for their own calling. How do you know what God's called you to do? Well, I'll know because it'll be the easy thing to do. I'll get so much great result. I won't have to do anything hard. It won't. And it'll serve me. It'll, it'll high paycheck, high profitability. Yeah. All the doors will open, Mm -hmm. right? I won't have to knock on any doors. They'll just come find me. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of idea. I wonder if we have forgotten the words of Chumba Wumba. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You ain't never going to keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Right. It's just that, and, and part of that Rocky idea is that he did work hard and practice. That's why people run the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art over and over again, because uh, they want, but he did the work. He got knocked down, but he got up again. It is, it is this fight the power. It is going back to refine. And that is part of the work of developing skill and developing competency. That's the work that David did unseen and hidden. Um, And oftentimes the way God builds women and men of faith is in those hidden seasons of life when we are not seen, not noticed, not observed, and we're not in the theater. We're not out in the open. We're not lauded for the effort that we put into it. That's a really important point because instead of like the quick path to the throne, the spotlight, the success, the worship team, whatever it is. Instead of that, usually it's actually the opposite. So you think about um, Joseph in Genesis, that Joseph, and he has to like, he goes through years and years of like some prison and slave labor and all this other stuff, and it develops his character, and, and it's like it's probably 15 to 18 years of just tough setbacks grinding out. Moses, he spends 40 mm. years yes. uh, as a shepherd in, in Nowhere Land. David 
spends his time first as a shepherd, and then he has a little bit of a a blip of like celebrity and success, and then he spends another 12, 15 years running for his life from Saul. And so he's basically in obscurity. He's an outcast. Paul, the apostle, same thing. He has the dramatic conversion. Like we would have been booking him on the talk shows and yes. we would have started his website. And he, what's what happens? He goes off to the desert for like over a decade. And I think that's, that's a really great point. And it's a, it's a biblical pattern and it's not one that's that we celebrate in our culture. Um, it's funny. You guys knew I wanted to be a rock star. Um, and you have the band to prove I it. Still, I still do. Um, it's just not going to. I'm really excited that all these guys are touring in their 80s. Um, but I remember um, it, it, was a, it was a long time ago, but the Rolling Stones were coming to the U.S. for a tour. And there was like an article about them and life magazine or something talking about how they prepare for the tour and Mick Jagger ran five miles a day. So he would have the stamina and the wind to, to sing every night for three hours or whatever. And when I read that, that, that it didn't make me not want to be a, a rock star, but it just made me realize like these guys really work at this. Like this is, this is really what they do. And, um, you know, there's there's some there's some songs. Um, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum all day. You know that that kind of stuff. And the people that actually do it are actually they're really talented. They really work really hard. Uh, they often have a lot of business savvy too. And like, it's not it's not really an accident. They're not. That's re- interesting. They're not really underdogs. So what you bring up is that idea of natural talent plus effort. It's not just I show up because I have this gift that I've been imbued with, but there is something about investing it, developing it. I'm putting effort into increasing the competency that I have on top of this natural gift or this natural strength, this natural talent, Um, right? Repetition to refine. No, it's really good. There's a verse about David. It's in the Psalms in the 70s somewhere that says like, God took him from shepherding the flock to shepherd his people. There's something parallel about leading sheep and leading a nation, and he did it with an upright heart and a skillful hand. And it's it's like there's that integrity of who he was as a person, but there's also those skills that there's actually a line, a line of continuity be the things between the things he learned as a shepherd and as as a as a king, and it set him up for it. It's not. So again, he wasn't an underdog who suddenly like somebody waved a wand and he became a king. Right. So so what you're pointing to, Chip, there is sort of like some leadership lessons, right? That David as a leader and and how God helped him leverage one experience of leadership from sheep to leading people. I'm wondering um, in this story of David and Goliath, um, what are the leadership lessons in this story? Who are the leaders and what do we learn about leadership from their various leadership dimensions of the story. Well, we could say th- there's three of them. Because um, you're a pastor, a former pastor, and pastor. Okay, come up points. with another one. Add another <laughs> one. But there's Goliath, Saul, and David. They're all the they're all they're all okay. doing leaders. Just, so Goliath is a leader. He's representing a whole nation, and he's throwing down the gauntlet, and he's saying, 
let's not have a conventional war. Just send out your best guy. So he's leading that that nation or that that group that people group, and he's representing them. Saul is the leader. He's got he's supposed to decide. He's not really leading very well, but he's he's in charge, and everybody looks to him. He's he was taller than everybody else apparently. Um, so so and then David's a leader because he initiates and says, well, it's this is unacceptable. There's a better way to do it. So I think there's that. It's interesting, like you said before, you wouldn't perceive David as being capable of fighting this giant guy, um, but yet, nor of but being Saul a lets him he, do it. He's not a perceived like, leader. They let him do it. Like it's kind of crazy that they let him do it. And Maybe the that's stakes. The stakes were really high if he lost. So that's that's you know they're de- we're not. I'm not trying to take away like that. There's God dimensions of the story. I think the fact that he got to do it uh, is a God dimension of the story, but it's, it is interesting. So maybe one of the lessons is that we, we have to, there's a hubris both in Goliath, there's a hubris in, in Goliath and there's a desperation, but it's still, it's not hope and confidence in Saul, you know, like he's, he, they're both failing in one way or another. David's the leader with courage and vision, skill, but also faith. Yeah, and, and David really leads in an interesting way. He has the skill, but then what does he say when he goes up to, to make his case? He also says, you know, God's going to do this. God's not going to stand for this. This is a God problem, and God's going to solve it. And let's give him an opportunity by showing these ugly Philistines who's really in charge here. And in doing that, I mean, you, you, you could make the case, well, why why did Saul allow this to happen? Why did they put David in front? That sounds like a I don't ridiculous know. I thing. I don't know that. I, I think that's but, a fascinating question in this story. Right. Well, part of, the, part of the equation has to be, I think, that David threw down the God card and said, this is God's battle. That's what's his claim. He did. He, I'm not sure you know, that, that. He didn't I have any know. other plan. I'm, I'm not. My jury's out on whether that is what carried the day. It could be that he had confidence because he, he believed that, right? I'm not taking that away at all. He totally believed that. So maybe it was he just he just exuded so much confidence that they're like, well, we don't have anything else to do. I I I doubt very much that they were thinking, David is the David's right. God has anointed him to go do this. I don't think that I just I don't have that much faith in their motives. I think they were just like, well, we've been out here for 40 days and nothing else. Nobody else has signed up. And so I just think they were they're desperate and he was so confident they thought well i don't know i i don't know would you say the same would you react the same way if he had confidence in the weather or confidence in in something else i mean the fact that it's god you say that he has confidence in made made I no don't know. impact it's not in the text it doesn't say yeah. that we don't really know so we're speculating no so i'm yeah. not sure i i just think if samuel the prophet came and told them david's the one to do this that would be one thing but David, the, the youngest son, David, the little brother. It was bringing was, snacks to bring the front snacks. line. Yeah, <laughs> like the snack guy. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I, I mean, I, those are, those, it's an interesting, there's a lot of interesting layers to this. I wonder, I wonder what the message is for the person that feels like deep inside, like I should be doing more. I should be doing something bigger. And they're running into obstacles and, you know, they really would like, it's like shoots and ladders and they're looking for that ladder for the quick, quick way up and it's not happening. I wonder if there's a, uh, a, a there's probably a, a couple messages in this for people like that. Yeah. I, that comment took me back to um, one of my girlfriends in college. 
she was an excellent student and she talked about how her mom always pushed her to take the most challenging courses in all math, science, English, social studies, the whole realm of it in high school because her mom would tell her over and over again, you don't know what God wants to do with you in your future. And this is the preparation time for your future. So you need to do the hard things so that when you you understand what God has called you to, you are ready to go for it. And you've got the skills and the training and the education behind you. If you don't do the hard work, you close the doors of opportunity. How? Let's keep them as wide open as possible so God can pull you through any door he wants you through. I really like that. Um, there's a there's a, a self-leadership task book called Eat the Frog. Mm-hmm which does basically do hard things first. So that, so the takeaway with that would be focus on like embrace the challenges, check off the hardest things you've got to deal with on your list each day and in each season. And that's going to lead to, to more. I mean, it really sounds like what Jesus said when he said, be faithful and little The person's faithful and little will be faithful and much. It's kind of like, it's a little bit of like, Bloom where you're planted. Focus on what's on your plate right now. Be be faithful where you are. And build. Build build into your skill set. Build into your competency. Grow your understanding uh, in the things that you're interested in. Uh, do the work. Do the hard work. Yeah, and, and what's also embedded in that challenge, Sarah, is that you might be taking on something that you'll fail at. The difficult class is not easy mm-hmm. to pass. And so... For you to take on the hard class, even when you think you might not be able to do it, takes a certain mindset. You're going to have to have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset, to even sign up for that class because it's much safer to take a class you think, oh, well, I could probably get an A in this one. Yeah, instead of instead of taking the layup, go for the three-pointer, mm-hmm. which is harder. And it, you know, Rick Warren said it was a pastoral, it was a quote to pastors, but I think it applies. It's, he said, focus on the depth of what you're doing as a leader, and God will determine the breadth, which is kind of, you know, focus on the quality, do the hard things, get good at what you do. Don't worry about how it's playing. It's really hard to embrace that idea in a world where we're always, we're always, we're always on film. We're always, we're always on screen. We're always putting ourselves on screen and showing off our lives other like lessons and even encouragements for the folks are saying, I feel like I'm supposed to do more. Or I could do more. And I'm not, I'm like, you know, what do you, can you or not in your head? What do you think? Well, I like that we're talking about leadership lessons. I think that, um, when you're living a life that's called and your caller has you here now, um, the, the, the lesson is to keep shooting the bears and keep shooting the lions and if god wants to bring a goliath along he will and if he doesn't then you know we're okay with that <laughs> we decide we're okay if we're, if we're letting him be in charge of the breath you could actually you could actually succumb to a way of living and working where you never will develop those skills by doing the hard things that actually open the doors for you to do more which include the hard conversations yeah right say Having more about the hard that. conversations well it's Think about this in a lot of areas of life. The hard conversations are hard and they're risky. And you have to put something on the line, whether you're leading up 
or correcting somebody below you. We hear lots of stories in our leadership academies from people who've never given heart difficult feedback to the people who report to them and how once they learn how to do that, it gets easier and they realize that they could have been doing this all along and it changes their leadership trajectory because suddenly they're leading, they're guiding, they're directing instead of managing around people. So I think that being willing to have the hard conversation to speak the truth with respect, to speak the truth with kindness, speak the truth with grace, uh, and be clear with our message. It's risky. We don't, we can't control the outcome. We don't know how the other person's going to respond. I, I think that's a big part of finding the courage to move forward and, and to step into, to step into our calling, to step into our purpose, to step into um, our future. Yeah, that's good. So we've got a couple of thoughts about what to do. So one is take the hard assignments, take the challenges, develop the skills and the depth. Another is have the courage to have the hard conversations. All of us probably have a few of them on the plate that we've been delaying and putting off. So that's another thing. I think I think a third thing is to stop counting on like a silver bullet. And like we, there's different ways we can do that. Like we can think if I could just get to this person, then I would get, get the, get the job and we put sort of all our eggs in that basket. Or, uh, if you're in a, in a client facing business, um, like we are, you could say if we just get that one big client, like it's, there's going to be one that just puts it over the top. And then you, and we've seen this with job seekers, right? They have one Mm -hmm. main lead and they think that's going to do it. So it's the sort of silver bullet magical thinking. If I just get that one opportunity, everything, everything's going to be great. And, that actually runs counter to biblical wisdom, mm-hmm. which says, in general, it's better it's better to sow your seed in multiple places, as Ecclesiastes 11 says. Sow it in the morning and in the afternoon, and don't stop until the evening, because you don't know which ones are going to actually take root and bear fruit. And it's, so there's a sense of having options, cultivating multiple relationships and multiple opportunities. And I think... So I think that's another sort of lesson from this. It's it's um, I don't I don't I mean don't latch on to one person, one option, and just put all your eggs in that basket. Well, I feel like that idea of magical thinking goes really well with this idea of the underdog who suddenly has everything being going easy, going well for yeah. them. Right, it's the same thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. And I like it for my own life, <laughs> but but it's not the mentality I want to teach to my daughter. <laughs> And it doesn't work in my own life. It's the fantasy. It's the it's the life of ease. It's the if I win the lottery, I never have to put effort into life again. It's, you know that's that's not true. Ask a lottery winner. I've seen them on Lottery Dream Home. There's a show called Lottery Dream Home. Yes. And you watch it? Well, it's not my favorite. I right. I don't. I'm, well, I no don't I'm not a consistent. No judgment. Yeah. No judgment mm-hmm. from Chip. <laughs> I have a C.S. Lewis quote I think that gets to the moving past the underdog to some more, sort of more of a productive uh, productive waiting maybe we could call it um, a productive God-centered waiting it says he says remember he talking about God is the artist and you're only the picture and you can't see it so quietly submit to be painted Meaning, fulfill the duties of your current station. What, whatever, if, do what you need to do now. Um, 
And you already know what they are. You already know what you need to do. Ask forgiveness for each failure and then move on. Now leave that alone. You're in the right way. Walk and don't keep looking at it. It's kind of interesting. Just trusting God with where we are and where he's taking us and, and not looking for the quick elevation to some other utopia, which won't come. Thanks for listening. As we close this episode, I'm going to use the H word, help. First, help us help you. Do you want to grow in your effectiveness as a worker and a leader? Are you wondering if you're in the right job or career? Maybe you lead a team and wonder how to make that better. Go to vocacenter.org consult for an easy scheduling link and book your appointment with one of our great coaches today. We are ready to help you. Second, help us help others. This podcast is brought to you by generous donors who change lives by changing work through their investment in VOCA. If you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, donate to VOCA. Go to vocacenter.org give and begin your partnership today. We'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast, where we help you build resilient faith at work.